Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So our guest today is all the way from Paris, France. It's uh, Pascal Gobry, who, despite being a Parisian, writes for multiple American publications and is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is based in D.C. So he is uh, taking jobs away from hardworking American candidates. Uh, so Pascal, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. I'm taking those jobs and for uh, much lower wages. Yeah. You you know things are bad for America when we're being outworked by a Frenchman. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Is now the time for my break? Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, so... Main topic of discussion today is going to be common good capitalism, which is the name uh, that Senator Marco Rubio gave to his uh, vision for the future of conservative and American politics. He gave a speech about this, uh, which, as these things often do, uh, generated a, a flurry of controversy and counter statements and right. so on and so forth. Uh, this is not entirely new. This is, I would say that this Rubio speech is kind of the latest in a series of rethinks or attempts to try and chart some sort of new way forward for the American right. Yeah. I, I know, for example, Senator Josh Hawley, he also had a, a recent speech that was talking along similar lines. And then the magazine First Things, uh, I guess it was earlier this year, still still 2019. Uh, but they, they had like it feels like much longer, but it's actually a short period of time. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, you know, Andy Warhol famously say, said that in the future everyone would be famous for fifteen minutes, but what he didn't say is that fifteen minutes would actually last years. Right. Anyway, so First Things magazine, they had a, a manifesto that was broadly raised some similar issues. And I mentioned it because you were a signatory of that manifesto. Yeah, I'm part of the evil empire. Right. Or the resistance. Yeah. I don't know which one it is. <laughs> so I haven't seen that you have responded directly to this particular Rubio speech. What were you, I mean, did you have any general thoughts about it? Uh, and then we could talk more about like some of the broader issues, but like the, the sure. speech, what did you think? So, yeah. So as you're saying, it's part of this, it's, it's part of a broader uh, movement, we use that word, it's part, it's part of this broader theme, which is sort of rethinking conservative economics, which in some ways has been going on uh, for for many, many years. Um, you know, if nobody remembers what, what were known as the reform conservatives at the time, who were sort of more focused on, on sort of family-friendly policy, there was a philosophical similarity in the idea that a, a social and economic vision has to be more than just about individuals uh, and individual rights and sort of maximizing the income of individuals. And Rubio, since he got into the Senate, was sort of very interested in those ideas. A lot of people worked on it at the time, and there was a sort of version 1.0 of this, uh, which was these ideas around child tax credits and all the rest. And of course, since uh, 2016 and Trump. So there are specific policy issues around trade. And then there are much broader issues around 
what what is the goal of economic policy? And the sort of famous moment was uh, when Tucker Carlson said this indisputably absolutely true thing, which is free markets are a tool. They're not an end in themselves. And everybody was shocked that he's, or a lot of people at least were shocked that he said that. A lot of people who, who have jobs in DC anyway, probably not normal people who are listening to him. Um, and so the, this movement, I, if we had to have a motto, I think that would be the motto, which is free markets are a tool. They're, they're a tool, they're a wonderful tool, uh, as somebody who lives in a socialist country, I support free markets unambiguously, but they're a tool to ensure a broader sort of flourishing. And at some point, and A, so there, there are basically like two problems with free markets as they're currently envisioned, I would say. Uh, number one, A, at some point they come into conflict with other goods we want to protect, such as family life, including things like uh, marriage formation, fertility. Should we, should we really celebrate the fact that women's labor force participation is higher than it's ever been? Should we celebrate the fact that Facebook is paying for its female employees to freeze their eggs? Um, and B, that that free markets are a political construction. They're not this naturally occurring phenomenon that government just needs to get out of the way of. They're something that is created, designed, maintained by government to accomplish certain ends of, of ensuring prosperity. And, and, and the second point is important because the sort of libertarian view is that free markets are this like naturally occurring magical thing. Any way of sort of like moving the dials a little bit on the machine is fascism. Whereas no, there's always a machine. We're always moving the dials in a certain way. There's no neutral position. The question is what dials do you move and how? to get to what outcome. And there is a question about means, which is, you know, what policies are good or bad, but there's also a question about ends, which is, uh, what do we want to get out of this? Is maximizing GDP or GDP per capita the only goal of economic policy, or is things like stable middle-class jobs also a goal of economic policy? Are things like family, strong families, a goal of economic policy? So those are those are sort of like, the, the broad outline uh, of, of the debates, and then you can get, you know, very specific into the weeds of like specific policy proposals. But that's sort of the broad outline, I think. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm one of these fairly libertarian type of people, uh, sort of in the way uh, Milton Friedman used to say, uh, libertarian with a small L and Republican with a big R. I'm, I'm certainly in that small L libertarian camp for, in a lot of things. And the problem with the, the tool analogy is... Uh, tools don't work themselves. Uh, somebody's got to swing that hammer. And I think that's one of the, the concerns that we have is a free market in a lot of ways will operate on its own without planning, without government intervention. And this common good capitalism, uh, I think in a most charitable uh, interpretation of it from our perspective is it's, it's calling for more government intervention and in some ways i question that it's it's going to have the uh the outcome that's intended 
I read the Rubio speech. I read his National Review article on the same topic. And I really, other than just sort of generalities, I really couldn't quite tell what issues he really wanted to get into. I mean, he's always been a proponent of child tax credits. But, you know, even things like changing the the tax treatment of stock buybacks, he almost seemed to be making some case that if we could change the tax treatment of stock buybacks, that we would see an increase in church attendance. And <laughs> I, 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 that, that, I don't really see how that, those two things are connected. So what's the connection, if any, between, uh, you know, having an industrial policy, having a little bit more governmental control and things like church attendance, family formation, uh, and other, you know, bolstering c- civil institutions? So a couple of things. First of all, uh, you, you know, you raise the point of unintended consequences, and this is something that all conservatives uh, should be where uh, should be uh, interested in, and it's certainly the case that the status quo uh, has also had unintended consequences. Uh, normalizing trade relations with China certainly had unintended consequences. If you if you look at what people were predicting the trade deficit would be versus what it actually ended up being, it's orders of magnitude different. So again, and opening up trade to China. Uh, was a policy decision, all right? It's, you know, in, in China, if you work at a factory in China and you ask your boss for a higher wage, you go, to, you go to a concentration camp. That's not a free market in the price of wages. There was a policy decision to let the Chinese Communist Party set the level of wages in the United States for, for industrial labor, all right? That's not a free market. Um, and so, uh, the idea of saying, well, we're not going to do that is not an intervention into a domain where previously you had no government. It's a different kind of government intervention, uh, which might be good or bad, but there, there's, there's no, there's no like new platonic ideal of neutral policy versus, uh, government intervention. You just have different kinds of government interventions. And all of them <laughs> have unintended consequences. Uh, the issue around tax treatment of stock buybacks, it's uh, Rubio's proposal is actually more free market uh, on, on that specific point because stock buybacks are actually advantaged in the tax code. Under Finance 101, uh, there should not be stock buybacks because uh, in, a, in a simplistic financial model, they're equivalent to dividends. And the reason why companies are doing stock buybacks and not dividends is because they have a preferential tax treatment. Uh, but the, the general point is that shareholders of large institutions have become more short-termist. And that has led for... We can debate the reasons, and that has led to a number of decisions that have cascading effects that lead, among other things, to to companies treating employees differently. And it's part of a, of a broader way in which it's harder to raise a family in today's economy if you're an employee. I mean, there, it's not that there's a direct relationship between the tax treatment of stock buybacks and going to church, obviously. But... There is a way in which the the current way the corporate system is set up with short-term maximization of, and I'm going to emphasize short-term because I believe in shareholder value, but I really think short-term is, is the difference. And I do have a bit of a, a, 
a difference with Rubio on this point. You know, maximizing short-term shareholder value at the expense of everything else does create conditions or does help to create conditions whereby our, our work lives make it harder to raise a family, make it harder to keep a family together and, and, make, and make it harder to, to have kids. And there, there is a clear conflict between, the, you know, when it comes to uh, whether you want stable families, whether you, whether you want families that have children, there's a clear conflict of interest between, you know, sort of corporate management writ large and families writ large. And policy's job is to sort of referee that, that conflict, you know, to make sure that one doesn't eat the other. Yeah, and I would say politicians, I think, from time to time have been uh, accused of focusing on short-term issues. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure. What I, I guess what my concern is there is, see, I think I agree with you on the stock buyback, particularly the tax treatment. What I think I'm confused by and troubled by is it was less so in Rubio's speech but we mentioned Tucker Carlson. Uh, Tucker Carlson recently sort of went off saying that the libertarians have been controlling Washington for decades. And there seems to be sort of a theme running around that uh, free market libertarians are the ones that are causing all the distress in the marketplace, even though we have you know the lowest unemployment in, I think, 50 years. Why, you know, at a time when you have people like Sanders and Warren that are truly... Uh, trying to undermine a free market, what's the advantage of sort of this infighting on the right and trying to uh, under you know trying to belittle libertarians, trying to belittle free market conservatives when we're talking about you know and some of these things are not that controversial. I mean, there could be a consensus on changing the tax treatment of stock buybacks. Uh, even the idea of the child care credit isn't that controversial, I wouldn't think, among free market people. There may be a d- difference on sort of whether you view it as being prudential or not. But why is what's what's driving this uh, sort of casting shade on the free market? Because that's the way it feels to, I think, a lot of us that are uh, free market advocates. Hey, so... Uh... One point that I would grant you is that it's certainly not the case that like the Cato Institute has been running uh, economic policy for the United States directly for the past 20 years. That's fair enough. Uh, but it is certainly a case that a libertarian kind of economics has uh, had a tremendous intellectual influence, certainly within the Republican Party, in a way that has created this sort of bipartisan, quote-unquote, neoliberal consensus uh, that did drive a lot of economic policy o- over the past 20 years, and and the result has been a disaster. I mean, you know, millions of jobs outsourced, all of our intellectual property being stolen by China, entire regions have, have had their economies vaporized, abysmal rates of marriage, abysmal rates of, of fertility, no wage growth, a very a very good economy for for the people uh, at the top, but a very crappy economy for the people at the bottom. I mean, the results are pretty damn dire. And this idea that if we if we just cut income tax rates uh, or whatever, if we have a flat tax, is is crazy. 
And, you know, I mean, I, I remember the debates around the, uh, the, the, the tax bill, um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, <laughs> um, the, the, the opposition to the child tax credit, to expanding the child tax credit was extremely vehement uh, from a lot of my conservative friends. The idea that, you know, cutting the corporate tax rate would unleash this wave of investment was pushed ferociously, even though it made no sense at the time. And the facts have borne out the fact that it has not created uh, this investment because we already have 0% interest rates. We have literally trillions of dollars sitting in the te- in the, on the sidelines. You know, in 1978, yes, it was true that high tax rates were discouraging investment, but that's not the problem we have today. And just to finish this point, but the, the, the Trump tax cut, because Trump has instincts, but he doesn't know how to run the process. And so his instincts weren't translated into policy. And so we, we got a sort of autopilot Republican bill uh, whose main priority was corporate tax cuts, uh, which A, was politically very dumb, and B, uh, had bad effects in terms of economic policy. I mean, it, it provided a short-term Keynesian boost, boost to the economy by expanding the deficit. Uh, right now, we're at the top of the economic cycle, and so the superficial economic stats looks look good, but wage growth numbers are, are not great. Investment numbers are bad as I predicted as, at the time. And so it's it's an example of a kind of philosophy, which is bad politics and bad policy. I was skeptical of the, the TCJA, but I don't think that you can really judge the, the, the economic outcome of the tax reform bill sort of cleanly now because of the trade uncertainty. And when I talk with, you know, my, my day job is I'm an attorney, uh, business attorney, and I talk with clients, the things that they're focused on is the uncertainty with trade because they don't, you know, we're not just talking about trade with China, but we have, you know, we've basically created a sort of a trade war, trade uncertainty with countries from Canada, Mexico, the European Union, around the world. And there's this type of uncertainty is causing, uh, is causing a a decline in demand for products around the world, which hurts American manufacturing. It's making it difficult for companies to make decisions about how they're going to manufacture because the supply chain is so integrated. So again, I I, I was pretty skeptical of, of some of the aspects of the tax reform bill. You know, it cut taxes without cutting uh, spending, which was a concern of mine. But the, you, I just don't think that you can, in a vacuum, judge what was in that tax package uh, because it was intended to bring in um, repatriating um, offshore uh, funds that were offshore by U.S. companies as well as sparking international investment. And it didn't. And I think a lot of the reason it didn't was because of the trade uncertainty right now. I think it's very difficult for corporate decision makers to really make any uh, strategic decisions. And they're kind of waiting out result of not just the the whatever trade agreement we might have with China, but with all the other trade uncertainty out there. So I think it's a it's a pretty muddled picture right now. Well, I mean, everything is always a muddled picture in economic policy, but it's pretty convenient. Let me just say that. I mean, you know, uncertainty is is this line is trotted out all the time. I'm I'm, I'm sure it must play some role. But we we essentially spent a trillion dollars 
on, on, on things that should not be a priority of economic policy because whatever the trade situation is, you still have uh, trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines. So it's not the case that, that high tax rates are, are what's, what's, what's deterring investment. And in any case, again, that's, that's not the problem that American society has right now. Right now, the problems of the middle class have to do with wage growth. They have to do with security. They have to do with securing what uh, we consider to be the goods of a middle class family, things around housing, healthcare, job security, and things like that. And we, we don't have the same economic problems that we did in 1978. I mean, the point I will give to, to this is that in some ways, the GOP is a victim of its own success which is that we solved the problems of 1978. Like, we did. But that means that now you have new problems, and as a result, you need new policies to deal with those new problems. Okay, on that point, what would be the policies of common good capitalism? So I'm obviously there's no like common good capitalism. We don't have like one specific view. There's I'm I'm just speaking for myself. You know, probably the best outline we have right now uh, of the case is Oren Cass's book, whose title escapes me, but the one in future worker. You you would you would start with wage subsidies. Uh, you would start with uh, pro family policies. You would you would definitely have a trade war. You would look at ways for government to invest in infrastructure and also in areas around national pol- um, uh, national security. Uh, you, you know, you would throw out Chinese grad students who are uh, stealing American intellectual property and spying on us and tearing down free Hong Kong po- posters. You know, those those would be the play, the the obvious places where everybody would agree that you would start, and you would have a, 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 an immigration system that uh, focused on driving wages up instead of driving them down. One of the things I think is interesting about that, Josiah mentioned that Oren Cass is a friend of the show, and uh, ironically, one of the mo- most recent guests we had was Kevin Williamson, uh, also who's been on the show a couple times, and they've they've gone round and round uh, about the common good capitalism. But bringing up yeah. Oren Cass and his book, uh, Oren was also, um, I believe, one of the authors in a something that a pamphlet that came out about a year or so ago, that was a joint product of AEI and Brookings Institute, and it had a lot of the same policy proposals that were in Oren's book. And uh, again, it was a very interesting book in the sense that, and I forget the title of it. We can put it in the show notes. One of the things they wrote in the book was that they were trying to. Uh, come up with policies that would help the working class, and they defined what they viewed the working class to be. But they also said, as a joint project of two think tanks, one right of center, one left of center, that no author in this project actually agreed with every proposal, but that this was a consensus of policies that could work towards uh, bettering the, the, the lives of the working class. Now, what I find interesting about this is the American Enterprise Institute was one of the, you know, one of the two organizations or may actually have been three organizations involved in this. But um, AEI catches some flack um, as being one of these free market think tanks. And I think this is one of the reasons that I I find so much of this disconcerting is 
you know, I consider myself very much a free market advocate. And then I look at something like this work from AEI and I see people sort of uh, demeaning the work that AEI does. And it's like, why are we not building a, a consensus on the uh, uh, for the, the market rather than all this infighting? Because I really can't see, particularly at a time when there's there's certainly room for debate, but at a time when you have people like Elizabeth Warren, who's trying to really, truly regulate the economy and undermine things like private equity and the capital markets, why is it that this is the right time for the right to be at each other's throats to try to control the narrative about the future of capitalism? Uh, I That's a good question. Um... I mean, there there are two ways to look at there's there are two ways to look at it. One is that you're right, and that there's an element of sort of narcissism of small differences, and that actually a lot of us agree on a lot more than we disagree. And a lot of the proposals, I agree, like could be embraced by sort of traditional, you know, the the wage subsidies is just an expansion of the earned income right. tax credit, which was a Reagan era policy, and which you know nobody hates. And so it's more of a matter of what do you prioritize versus this radical new thing. And, and, and that's true in democratic politics in general. And that's a good thing, which is that, you know, especially in the American constitutional system, you need to build consensus for something. And so it's always going to be incremental. And again, in the grand scheme, that's good. Another answer is that there is an important philosophical debate about ends, about what are we trying to accomplish uh, you know, you're not going to have a free market for a very long time if people stop having kids and stop getting married, uh, because a viable economic unit is a family. And if you don't have enough families, then demand for government become explosive. And, you know, I mean, you say, oh, Elizabeth Warren undermines the private equity. Well, I'm sorry, but private equity is a, a welfare queen industry. I mean, the between uh, the, the the tax treatment of carried interest and 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 the privilege for debt for corporate debt on the tax code, it is an industry that is massively subsidized uh, by the government, and it's one of the ways in which our policy, far from being free market, has encouraged you know financialization and inequality and undermining the middle class. And I think she's totally right. I mean, I, you know, there, you know, there are lots of policies by, by Elizabeth Warren that I disagree with, obviously, but there are a lot of points she makes where I think she's indisputably right. Um, you know, I think it would be a disaster if we let the Democrats run away with the idea of pro-family policy, which they're, they're starting to do. And if our only response to pro, to Warren's pro-family policy was like, oh, well, this is just more government spending. Well, no, actually, because families are are the building blocks of society and they should totally be supported. They should be the priority of of our policy. And we should have a free market insofar as, as it helps us have prosperous, strong families. Let me throw out an issue that I, I haven't seen uh, discussed in... By any, you know, by by Cass or any of the other main folks, they have been talking about this common good conservative idea. But I, I think actually could be very important. And you know, there's also some risk uh, whenever it comes to talking about this in politics. But I, I, I'm talking about monetary policy, 
because this seems to be a clear area where if you look back, you know, one of the successes of 1978 uh, that you talked about the Republicans being the victims of their own success. One of the successes was ending the era of high inflation and stagflation and all that. But now it does seem that we have almost an opposite problem where whenever you start to see wage growth, uh, particularly wage growth among the middle class or lower income folks, especially the Fed sees that as a warning sign we're about to get hyperinflation and they they kind of slam on the brakes of the economy. Certainly, if you look, if you look, you know, since the Great Recession, if you look at the Fed's estimates of uh, what they call the natural rate of unemployment, so it's just like how low can you get the unemployment rate before you start to risk, you know, a financial bubble or something. It Basically, they've said, well, it was, you know, uh, it was it was. Yeah. Six is six and a half percent, yeah. and then unemployment goes below that, and then they revise it. And they say, yeah. "Oh, I, it's actually six percent, but now we're at full, full employment, and it keeps going down." And they keep revise, you know, they keep saying, "Oh, uh, this is full employment," and then it turns out they were wrong. That's the recovery has been a lot slower than it had to be because of that, and wage growth has been over the decades a lot slower than perhaps it had to be. So I, I don't know. I, I know that you have some thoughts on this issue, but this is something that I would raise that I think folks that are sympathetic to this whole common good conservative idea really need to think more about because monetary policy in a way kind of can trump all sorts of other, you you can get a lot wrong in your economy. And if you get monetary policy, right, things will be okay. And vice versa. If you get everything right, except you screw up monetary policy, you're going to have a depression. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, yeah, as you know, monetary policy is one of my interests. It's, uh, it's always complicated because it's a bit esoteric. Everything about it is counterintuitive, and we actually know much less than we think we know. And and it's also weird because it's um, under the purview of this supposedly independent uh, organization, which is – and so, you know, you can't pass an act of Congress. I mean, you could, but people aren't prepared to do that. And so it's not like another thing where you're trying to get a bill passed or whatever. No, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, monetary policy is a good example of what I was talking about, the fact that there's no neutral economic policy because at literally at any given point in time, you have a, you have a given money supply, uh, you have a given quantity of money, and what, that, and what you decide the quantity of money will be will, all else being equal, have distributional effects. It will either benefit uh, creditors or or not. And so there's no there's no neutral monetary policy. And 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 you summed it up right. Like we had there was a real problem with inflation in the 70s. It was tamed. Uh, but then we went through this era of lower and lower inflation, which led to zero interest rates. And we were talking about Milton Friedman earlier. Like today Milton Friedman would go nuts. He would go nuts. He would say the Fed is incredibly hawkish. It's it's keeping the the it's keeping the valves super tight. What we remember as the Reagan Revolution had five percent inflation. Like ten percent inflation destroys destroys your economy. Five percent inflation, we've had that for many many times, and and it worked and it worked out really well because. Well, again, like there's a lot of things we don't know, but there's definitely a sense in which all else being equal, lower inflation, 
extremely low inflation uh, makes wealth trickle up. It's it's better for those who hold assets and hold debt. And we certainly had 30 years of the Fed saying the Fed and Western central banks saying, well, if there's a drop in the stock market, we're going we're going to fly over with a fire hose. Uh, but if wages ever grow up, I've got this baseball bat and I'm going to take it to the economy's kneecaps. So you watch out. And lo and behold, 30 years later, uh, you know, the, the rich have gotten a lot richer and wages are stagnant. So uh-huh, surprise. So, yeah, it's definitely something to to pay attention to. It is very funny to me to watch how Trump <laughs> consistently understands monetary policy better than like 95% of economic policymakers. He's got, he's, you know, it's, it's this, the weird Trumpian instinct slash weird genius that he has where he can sort of sometimes get at the heart of something much better than so-called experts. Although, of course, sometimes not. Well, do, you, do you want to talk any more about common good conservatism or are you, are you just, you're convinced? I've been so crystal clear and persuasive, I can't imagine why not just you, Doug, but everybody listening to this be completely convinced by now. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot of work left to be done to convince me of common good capitalism. So Christmas is coming up. You mean the holiday season, Josiah? <laughs> well, we're already in the, the holiday season because there was Columbus Day. That's a holiday, right? So, but, but this is specifically about Christmas because one of the, you know, I, I, I don't know if you, you know this, Pascal, but it is, a, it is a common feature of modern life for parents to tell their kids that they need to behave. Otherwise, Santa's not going to give them <laughs> I can tell when people have been following me on Twitter for a long time. <laughs> yes. Where where could you be going with this? That's right. That's right. Well, uh, so it's interesting because uh, I, I I know you are a proponent of parent parents shouldn't do this. They shouldn't mislead their children or lie to their children about Santa or whatever. And I should yep. say I am I have a particular interest in this because my dad when he uh, was when he was growing up. And he found out that Santa wasn't real. Like uh, apparently, uh, you know, m- most kids they don't have a problem with it. You know, whatever. But he was like very right. shocked that like his parents would lie to him about it. So when right. we were growing up, you know, we did all the Santa stuff, but it was always made clear. You know, this is just this is just pretend, right? Right. Uh, right. So so anyway, so so why don't you make the case for why it's actually or killing Santa? Yeah, right. Yeah. You're anti-Santa, you're anti-Santa jihad or, or whatever it is. Yes, yes, it is absolutely a jihad. <laughs> so I used to write this column about every holiday season. Now I don't have a regular column and also I get tired. The the main, you know, just to flag this, the main response I get every every time is you must not have kids. So I do. And so just to get that out of the way, I have practiced what I preach, as my parents did me when I was young. So even if I didn't have a kid, I would know. But I do have a kid and she's fine. Yeah. So, I mean, so there's there's many reasons why I object to this. Uh, number one is the sort of general principle that you shouldn't you shouldn't lie to your kids, just period. And you just don't have to. I mean, sometimes you you can, you know, you can give them age appropriate answers. I mean, obviously, if your four year old says, Dad, how where do babies come from? Like you don't give them like the full speech, but there are, you know, there are age appropriate things you can say that don't involve like storks. Right. Secondly, uh, you know, if you're a Christian, 
the whole thing as a parent well oh no the thing about the magic bearded flying mi- flying guy that was a that was a game the stuff about jesus that's totally true <laughs> like strikes me as like not a great strategy just generally especially if you're bringing up kids in a world that seeks to undermine belief and as you say like the feedback i get from these from having written this column and gotten into this fight a bunch of times is that yeah sure for most most kids they don't you know whatever it didn't affect them they found out some way that santa was real whatever but there is a minority of kids who when they find out it is traumatic or semi traumatic event to find out that their parents sort of pulled this actually rather elaborate con on them for many years and and it makes them feel terrible and they're shocked by it and it's like most likely your kid will be fine like it's not the biggest deal in the world i agree with that but you don't know maybe maybe they will feel terrible and yeah and and like there are variants of this such as you know i mean i don't like the idea of I'm not going to use the word bullying, but the whole thing of like behave because otherwise Santa won't bring you a present. Like, no, you should, you should find your own way to get your kids to behave. Like you shouldn't need to tell them, you know, about the fires of hell. Right. Um, on this point, I will say that I have a daughter and not boys and that I understand discipline is harder with boys, but still, uh, you don't actually need. And in fact, like for eight months out of the year, you don't need Santa to get your kids to behave and somehow everything works out fine. Uh, you know, the sort of elf on the shelf, like this idea that, you know, again, like there's this North Korean system that we have that we're going to watch you forever. (laughs) It it just don't like it. Like, I mean, the the internet is so full of self-righteous parenting advice that I I hate to bring it in, but I also hate Santa. Right. And so I I just think everything about it is bad. And so people take this personally. And so I don't want to say like, you're a bad person if you like, I understand that it's a tradition. Tradition. Most people do it, and for most people, it's fine. But I'm against it, and I didn't do it, and my parents didn't do it. For these reasons, A, it's bad to lie. B, it's probably not a good idea if you want them to believe in Jesus. And C, it's a cop-out if you're using it for discipline. D, it most likely they'll be fine, but maybe it will actually be something bad for them to find out that Santa isn't real, and there's no reason to take the risk. Yeah, And those seem like pretty compelling reasons. I will say on the discipline point, you know, if that is a concern to you, you could always say to your kid, if you're not good, I won't get you presents, right? You can tell your kids, well, what kind, what presents do you want for Christmas? Like you can still have a tree, you can still have a reveal. Right. You, you yeah, want. you can do all this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's the exact same threat. In fact, it's probably more credible because, you know, they always think, well, maybe Santa won't find out or he's, you know, nicer than you are, dad. Right. It's an empty threat anyway, because no one has ever, you know, no one has ever not gotten their kids presents, you know, because they were really bad. Right. Something. So we do this with our kids. Really, the only downside about it has been trying to keep my son from telling the other kids, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So Yeah. So what I told my daughter is that Santa, the Santa story is essentially a fairy tale. And so, like, you know, it's not real like Cinderella 
or whatever. But like fairy tales, sometimes parents like to play pretend with their kids because there was an awkward moment. You know, I remember playing with a, uh, I was at a friend's house when I was like five and like he mentioned Santa and me being a kid. I said, what, Santa? Of course there is no Santa. And I always remember like his mom was, you know, yeah. was behind him at that point and she was like waving like, no. <laughs> in slow motion and I, I i remember this and i was like no santa is not by which i mean he's completely real like right. that's literally yeah, he's completely real. and for a five-year-old it worked but it was, <laughs> yeah well, so that's 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 how i managed that with her because yeah we didn't want to get in trouble at our school with our daughter telling all the other kids that santa true. isn't real yeah and and actually the risk is not so having experienced this both myself and and with my kids the risk is not that uh, the, your kid is going to tell another kid that Santa isn't real and ruin it for them, because what will happen is they will, in this, you know, 100% guarantee, they'll ask the teacher and the teacher will say, oh, no, he's wrong. Santa's real, right? So the risk is just like you have right. to deal with these teachers. It's like a part of education for a kid to learn that his teachers can be dumb and wrong. Yeah, that's fair enough. Fair enough. I hope you all know that the name of this episode is going to be Common Good Capitalists Hate Santa Claus. <laughs> Hashtag not all common good capitalists. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's true. I don't know what I don't know what Rubio thinks on the Santa question. Someone should ask him. Okay, well, uh, we're approaching an hour here, uh, so I think that's good. Uh, Pascal, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me. And uh, enjoy. They don't have Thanksgiving in france but i guess they still do have christmas so have happy holidays we do have christmas for now yeah for now <laughs> thanks a lot guys hey buddy is the pokemon over 